2: Final hour of the John Chuckery experience from uh, the Northern Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92 on the game, taking it to 11 o'clock. John Fricky with you for uh, tonight, tomorrow, and Friday. And then John Chuckery will be back on Monday as we uh, get ready for the start of uh, – I gave you the dates earlier here. Let me take these back up again. My countdown dates, where they go? Here they are. The important numbers tonight, 14, 21, 29, 52. 14, 21, 29, 52. 14 days to the first veterans report. That will be the New York football Jets in 14 days. 21 days until the Falcons veterans report to Flowery Branch, and we will have complete coverage wall-to-wall of AT&T training camp on Sports Radio ninety-two in the game. Uh, 29 days until the Jets and the Browns uh, toe meets leather, to quote the great Al Seraldo. Uh, Jets and Browns in the Hall of Fame game 29 days from today. We are 52 days away from week zero with Navy taking on Notre Dame as the marquee game in week zero. And uh, we'll see if they move any games up. You know, they, they sometimes they've done stuff like that and grab a game and move it up to Thursday night. But at the moment, they haven't done that. Uh, and uh, 52 uh, days until week zero. We're talking about any team, pro or college, you want to talk about uh, we've talked about uh, Miami. We've talked about Georgia Tech, a little bit of Clemson talk in there. Uh, and certainly uh, talked about the Steelers, the Cowboys, and and others. And so if you want to jump in here, Dede's uh, San Francisco 49ers. If you want to jump into the conversation, this week is about uh, opening up co- college and NFL talk to all of you out there. And so in all my years of doing the national radio prior to coming to uh, 92 on the game when we went on the air in 2012, I, um, I was um, – know, out here uh, doing national radio on the 4th of July weekend and talking football. And so I'm kind of bringing that back to this station in a way here. Four zero four seven two six zero nine two nine, 726 Let's get to uh, Teddy. He wants to uh, jump into the conversation. Hey, Teddy.
3: Hey, how you doing, John? Good, man. Hey, I've got a few Nebraska football questions for you.
2: Oh, okay. Good right, shoot.
3: Yeah. Uh, what year did Nebraska leave the Big 12 to join the Big 10? Was it the year that uh, New Dominican Sue was throwing Colt McCoy around like Ragdoll?
2: Yeah, you know. Yeah, it may have been that, that next year or maybe the year after that. I don't recall exactly. I mean, that that game stuck in my – there was a horrifically bad call by the officiating crew at the end of the game. But, but that I know, but the, that moment the Huskers, the Huskers, we didn't have no offense that year. Nope, but they had a great defense.
3: I know. The defense was awesome. And uh, one more Nebraska question. Uh, Nebraska quarterback, that's the head coach for the Bengals. Uh, what's his name? Zach Taylor? Yep. Yep. How much do you think his success right now is from coaching or just Joe Burrow being
2: so good? Well, it, it helps that Joe Burrow's great. <laughs> you know, I, and Jamar Chase is great, and Dee Higgins is pretty damn good, and Joe Mix is pretty damn good. And, you know, I mean, you know what? You you, you look like a much better coach when he's your quarterback and not, I don't know, <laughs> the noodle arm quitter. You know what I mean?
3: And uh, well, uh, so, Yeah, one, la- one last question. Who, who's who's your favorite uh, Nebraska player of all time, Amon Green or –
2: Oh, I have no – God, I don't know. I mean, all time, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I've got so many friends who play for the team, uh, you know, that that's hard for me to answer because I've got, okay. you know, if I, you know, said, you know, these guys you know, are friends of mine. I mean, so, uh, I – I, I even, uh, Tommy Frazier, I guess. I mean, I, I really don't have a favorite. And Dominick I loved. I love so many of them. I don't, I don't even know where to start. Uh, Teddy, thanks for the call here. Um, it is um, – yeah, it is uh, kind of a – Interesting that these great powers, uh, you know, and hopefully Matt Roll does well, and I hope Nebraska fans understand because, you know, as you would think, having gone to school there uh, and having been a fan of the team, that, you know, I would pop, I'd pop onto the, you know, to the, check out the Twitter, check out the Facebook, you know, for the fans page, as I do. And, boy, some of these fans are just like, guys, slow down, okay? You know, seven wins is a good season, all right? Seven wins for Nebraska is a good season. Yeah, all right. Just be like Kentucky. <laughs> That's all. You know, let's start somewhere. You know, I mean, boy, Scott, there is nothing more disappointing to me than Scott Frost of what he did in Nebraska or did not do at Nebraska. Oh, that was heartbreaking. And he comes in off an unbeaten season where so, uh, Central Florida is calling itself the national champion and goes to Lincoln, and we all think we finally got it whooped, and he just, yep, sometimes it doesn't work that one did not work. This is what you got to be careful of is getting into that spiral of coaches. So, you have to have a coach come in and settle you down. I mean and, and programs go through it by the way. It took Gene Stallings to settle down the, the Alabama program at one time. Right? And boy Gene Stallings did really good things. People forget people forget Gene Stallings because of you know, it was sandwiched in between Bear and Saban, but Gene did some really nice things with the program. Really good things. Like, win a national title. I mean, so, I mean, he's a really good coach. And they went through all the mics. They had Mike Debose, and Mike Shula, and yes, they had Mike Price. Ooh-wee, roll tide, Destiny. Yeah, so there were some lean years in Tuscaloosa. But also don't forget that Nick Saban comes in. He had had the national title at LSU, but he had failed as a head coach at Miami with the Dolphins. Sort of like Matt Ruhle had had those great teams at Baylor and, Failed in the NFL as head coach, of Carolina. Failing as a head coach in the NFL is not a, a game changer. Some guys are just built for the college game. But Nick Saban came into Tuscaloosa. His first year, he went five and six, or five and seven. One of the two. He was under five hundred, and that Alabama team lost a game at home to. They lost. Nick Saban lost a game at home to Louisiana Monroe. Yeah, they lost to Louisiana Monroe. At home in Tuscaloosa, Nick Saban. Those Louisiana Monroe guys, they still live that one. Hey, we beat Nick Saban at uh, Bryant Denny Stadium. They did. Now, the next year, they were off to the race. They like boom, 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 and everything else is history. But that first year, he was under 500. So sometimes it takes a minute. Now, Kirby Smart, it didn't take no time, right? I mean, Kirby walked in, but Mark Richter put the program. You know, I know that Georgia fans do have a, you know, profound respect for Mark Rick. And of course, we certainly wish him and pray for him the very best for his health. Uh, and Mark was such a wonderful guy. And did really good things with the program, too. Um, but couldn't quite get over that hump. But he left Kirby pretty stacked. I mean, he walked. In, Kirby walked in with a pretty good team. You know, a lot of talent. And so it wasn't like devoid out there. So he wasn't walking into a tough situation. Nick Saban walked into a tough situation in Alabama that first year. He had to get some players in it fast. And it's sort of like Matt Roll. He's got to get he had to get players in it fast. Now Matt Roll has an advantage because of the transfer portal, but nonetheless, because um, that didn't exist obviously. I mean, you could transfer in those days when Nick Saban took over Alabama, but not like this. There were transfer players, sure. There've been transfer players. Forever, I and mean, there were players transferring colleges in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. Quite a few of them would transfer. It wasn't uncommon to hear of transfer players in the nineteen. But back in those days, sometimes you had to, you know, there were rules like you have to sit out a year or even two or something stupid like that. Or I mean, if you're going to do, you going to transfer inside the conference in the SEC, you got to sit out two years. Why, huh? Say who? Yeah, I mean, just silly rules like that. And think about we. I thought those were silly then. Think about how silly that sounds now. That if you transfer within the SEC from an SEC school to an SEC school, not only do you have to sit out a year because transfers had to sit out a year, but you got to sit out an extra year because you're you sit in the SEC. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. Four zero four seven two six zero nine two nine. You want to talk about your team, any school, any team, uh, pro or college. There are teams in the NFL that I'm higher on than some other teams, uh, you know, and that's okay. You have yours. I mean, if I'm picking division winners in the AFC, yeah, I'm going to go with the. Chiefs. I'm going to go with some chalk. Sure, I'm going to go with the Chiefs. I'm going to go with the Bengals. I'm going to go with the Jaguars. But in the AFC East, I'm not going to go with the Bills. I am going to go with the New York Jets. I, guys, gals, Aaron Rodgers is still Aaron Rodgers until proven otherwise. Don't forget that when Brett Favre left, he ended up in Minnesota as the quarterback of the Vikings, and if he doesn't throw a really crappy interception late in the fourth quarter in New Orleans in the NFC title game, he takes the Minnesota Vikings to the Super Bowl. It wasn't like Brett Favre left Green Bay and just forgot how to play. Aaron Rodgers is Aaron Rodgers, and he's got weapons. He's got Brees Hall. He's got Garrett Wilson. He brought in Alan Lazard for a reason. That defense has got a lot of players. I like the New York Jets. So I'm going to go with the Jets to win the East. Uh, in the NFC, yeah, sure, 49ers in the West and Philadelphia Eagles in the East. Now, I don't know about the North and the South here. I mean, I think the Falcons will win in the South. The North, you could talk me into – you could literally talk me into any of the teams. North is open, but, you'd but have I to think go. it's
4: still Minnesota's to to lose.
2: And see, and I don't. Really? No, I think the Lions are as good as Minnesota, and I wouldn't be shocked me if the Bears were.
4: Well, yeah, now minus Dalvin Cook. I, I, I could see I don't know, you still got but again you still got Justin Jefferson.
2: May, yeah, I okay, great. You got a great player. He's a great player. I understand that. But I think you're looking at Minnesota as a, a to me they were a paper tiger. That team though again, they went twelve and one in one score games. You know, are they gonna do that again?
4: No, nah, it's going to be tough this year. I still think it's theirs to lose, though. Um, I mean, remember, I said that at the beginning of the year last year. I don't know if you remember, but I just and – t- and I like what Detroit is doing, but until someone – you know, it's like, you know, what's the old Ric Flair saying? To be the man, you got to beat the man. So until somebody really shows that Minnesota's well, not going to – I think
2: I can argue in the second half of the season last year the Lions were the best team in that division.
4: You think so? Second oh, half? Oh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. If they hadn't started like one and eight. They would have been, yeah. I mean, I mean, they caught fire. Many, what, they went yeah. seven in a row. And, yeah, they caught fire. You know, and all that Dan Campbell weirdness and the Dan Campbell uh, unusualness, right?
4: Well, they do have two of the, uh, you know, they've drafted some of the best uh, players for the trenches uh, that they've got um, in Sewell and uh, what's the what's the kid, the uh, defensive kid? Uh, can't think of his name. The uh, edge rusher. Uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank.
2: But still, well, you, do, you talking about Detroit. You, yeah, you Detroit. Hutchinson.
4: Hutchinson. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see. I mean, and, and you know what? You hit on something. I was, I was always a fan of Jared Goff. I just felt like, um, I felt like he kind of got a raw deal. And initially, I thought going to Detroit was going to kind of be the, uh, you know, the end of his career. You know, um, but. He, he went up there and he did what he had to do. So uh, you, you you could be right. They, they could still be the team. They could be that team. But I just still think it's Minnesota's to lose.
2: I think it's really close. Um, uh, You know, any of those, I think you could throw. Uh, Green Bay is just a, an enigma to me. Um, my expectation is they're not going to be very good. Uh, but I could be wrong. Again, this is why I asked for our cheesehead to talk to me about Jordan Love. Somebody's seen Jordan Love more than I have. I've seen Jordan Love play a little bit. But I haven't really locked in on them, and what I've seen, I haven't been all that impressed. But you know, they—they're—I I think they have enough faith in them. Obviously, they gave them the job, and it's not like there aren't other players out there. Yeah, they go didn't go.
4: At, yeah, they didn't go after anybody. They didn't even show interest in anybody else. So,
2: but they also may be setting themselves up too. I mean, they may be setting themselves up in Green Bay. If I'm a Packers fan, I want that team to go four and thirteen. Well, why? I want Caleb Williams. I want Michael Penix. I want top of the draft. I want a top three pick. I want a quarterback. I want a star quarterback out of this next draft. I want another franchise guy. Yeah. I want Jordan Love to be Joey Harrington.
4: But, right? but do you like? What if he? I mean, what if he's that good and and can be that guy? Then just
2: roll well, with it, right? If he is, I mean,
4: yeah. Well, sure.
2: If he is, do you think he is?
4: I mean, to your point, we just haven't seen enough. I mean, between him,
2: yeah, I know, we haven't seen enough. You know,
4: we just haven't seen enough. So, Green Bay is just that—that they're uh, that—they're the oddball team. You don't really know what you're going to get because of that factor.
2: Well, I started this uh, show off by saying all the loss last night by the Braves did was make them mad. (laughs) (laughs) It was eight to one tonight. And Matt Olson hit a baseball like to the moon. I mean, he I, I didn't see how far that one was it five hundred I mean, oh my god. It, it was it the longest home run the Braves have hit this year? 474. Murphy hit a home run. Austin Riley hit a home run. How about that? And it was eight to one. That game easily with a couple of clutch hits with two outs in the later innings, that game would have been eleven or fourteen to one. I mean, the 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 Braves just <laughs> just made him mad. And another really solid outing by Michael Soroka. How about that? Another solid outing by Michael Soroka. The Braves bats boom. They take two out of three in Cleveland. They shouldn't have. Again, now twenty-five and four in their last twenty-nine. And those four losses, two of them were in extra innings, and one was a one-run loss. And they kind of look at the extra innings and the one-run loss and say, "We we should have won all those. We shouldn't be twenty-five and four. We should be twenty-eight and one." I mean, they went out and they just toyed with the Cleveland Guardians again tonight and beat them like a drum which I fully expected, by the way, that they were going to do. I wasn't sure how the game was going to play out because we don't know. But I said, look, they're they're mad. Because, again, all it did was make them mad. Because once they tied the game yesterday, they couldn't get the run in the 10th. And they thought, if we just get this run in in the 10th inning, we win the game. Which they should have probably not even been in the 10th inning. They should never have let Cleveland back into the game to begin with. But things happened, okay? And so I think they just got mad and so they go out and start pounding baseballs over the fence they had 19 hits tonight they only had eight runs but they had 19 hits that's why I said it, sh- it should have been 14 to one thank goodness they didn't need a clutch hit eight eight runs on 19 hits they were pounding on the Cleveland Guardians Earlier in the program, we had a chance to have a lengthy conversation about what's going on, what's what with uh, the Georgia Dogs, and uh, look at the SEC, both the SEC East and the SEC West, with one of the experts, Jonathan Williams of Dog Daily. Going to bring uh, that uh, interview back for the audience that didn't hear it earlier uh, in-depth about uh, what's uh, what it looks like. We're less than a month away from camp. Sports Radio ninety nine. the game in the Odyssey app. From the Northern Kia Studios, Sports Radio 92 on the game. John Chuckery out for a few nights. John Fricky in for him. And uh, I mentioned uh, earlier the uh, countdown is on. The important dates you need to know, 14, 21, 29, 52. 14 to the first veterans reporting for the New York Football Jets. 21 to the Falcons uh, vets reporting. 29 to the first Hall of Fame game. 52 days now to week zero. So the countdown is on for camps to open across the Southeastern Conference. We welcome into the uh, program on the for dot com hotline. You can find him at Dr. Dr underscore J Will on the Twitter. Jonathan uh, Williams, Dogs Daily. Hey, Jonathan, how you doing?
3: I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on the show.
2: Uh, n- n- no big deal. Hey, I got a question in regards to all of the issues because we were having this discussion, uh, Carl Dukes and I, the other day. Uh, we're having a discussion on the show about um, you know, he said to me. These issues that are happening up in Athens, um, do you think that they are a big deal? And my answer was, no, I don't think they're any deal. I don't think they're any deal at all. I mean, they're a deal, Jonathan, to the degree that obviously we had a horrific car accident that took two people's lives. But as far as it affects the program, I I don't think this is affecting the program at all. Do you?
3: I mean, I guess it can affect the program in some instances. Like you said, when a tragic event like that happens, it definitely affects the roster and the team morale in some capacity. But... In regards to the success that the program is having, the trajectory of this team in 2023, I don't know that it's going to have any effect on that. I think Kirby Smart and his entire staff has shown great leadership throughout his entire time in Athens. And I think they're continuing to show they are working to get better as a program. They're working to fix these things. As long as he shows those things and as long as he continues to be a great leader and he surrounds himself with great people and they show those kids what is right, what is wrong, and they keep putting them in good positions. I think the program's going to be fine overall.
2: Yeah, I do too, and, and we, we know that they have been tabbed to be favorites in all 12 of their games, and, and much has been made about their strength of schedule, though I think it might prove out to be a little bit more difficult. And Again, Jonathan, I don't think we have to really worry about your strength of schedule. If you're going to win another Natty, you're going to have to go through an SEC title game and two playoff games. That stretch alone earns you a Natty, correct?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the same instance as last year. You go into the SEC championship game undefeated. You probably still have a chance of going into the playoffs, even if you do lose that game, of course, depending on who your matchup is. But yeah, the ultimate goal is you go undefeated in the regular season and you take care of business in Atlanta and you're in a prime position to go and win the national title again.
2: You know, I, being list, list season, Jonathan, uh, there was one list here that I'm going to talk more at length about tomorrow. Ranking the quarterbacks in the SEC, and we know who the who the big names are coming in because they're established quarterbacks. We're talking to the KJ Jeffersons and Devin Leary's and people of that nature. Um, I'm curious from a standpoint, if, if you say that maybe the quarterback, three-headed quarterback at Alabama where Milroy, I understand, is leading, three-headed quarterback at Georgia where Carson Beck is leading, th- we're going to get a breakout guy from one of those two on both teams that will eventually pro- propel the starting quarterback of that particular team to top two or three in the in the SEC by the end of the year, correct?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think both teams – I think Georgia is probably in a better position quarterback-wise than Alabama just because it kind of seems like they have their guy, Carson Beck, who's been in the program for three years now. He's been groomed to take over this leadership role and become the starting quarterback. Alabama kind of got to experiment with Milroe a little bit last year and see how he did. I think he did okay just for a guy that kind of got thrown to the rules a little bit. And, of course, when you're being compared to how Bryce Young was playing for Alabama, you're never going to live up to those standards. And then you bring in Tyler Buckner from Notre Dame, a guy that does have some experience. But, again, I think there are more questions surrounding that Alabama quarterback room than there are George's.
2: You know, there's been talk about how Nick Saban handles his quarterbacks. We saw the situation with, uh, you know, Tua and Jalen Hurts when he was there. I think it's been somewhat unfairly uh, said of, of uh, Kirby Smart uh, that – he um, he doesn't have a you know quick enough trigger or something. I'm like, dude, just won two national titles. I think he knows what he's doing here. And I think you've seen him pull the trigger before. You know, Jacob Eason happened, and, uh, and suddenly uh, you had to go to Jake Fromm. And then you have Duan Mathis happen, and you got to make a, another decision. If anything happens to Carson Beck, he's not going to hesitate here. If Carson Beck doesn't come out of the you know jump here in a couple of weeks by the time you get to South Carolina to make a move, right?
3: No, absolutely not. I think it's funny because this, now that it, it's not until this season, until Kirby Smart has really had a quarterback that has just waited his turn in the system. You mentioned the first two, Jacob Easton and Jake Fromm, were both true freshmen when they took over the reins of the offense. And then even Stetson Bennett, while he was at Georgia for multiple years before he he became starting quarterback, he was at Juco for a year. And then he came back under a new system with Todd Munkin. So he really isn't even grouped together in that Carson Beck conversation of people who have waited their turn developed themselves within the offense and really got their bearings before they're starting before they became the starter for the team. So, yeah, I think if it did come down to it, if say your starter, whoever it is, whether it's Brock Vandegrift or Carson Beck or whoever, if they aren't getting the job done, I don't think he'll hesitate to pull the trigger because he knows what's on the line. He knows what his team has to do. And if the guy's not getting it done then he's going to take that guy on going with his next bet, he does it at every other position. So why wouldn't he do it at quarterback?
2: Jonathan Williams of dogs daily. He's at, uh, at, dr dr underscore j will w-i-l-l on the twitter he's uh, talking dogs uh, with john frickey on sports radio 90 time the game is there a clear difference now i know that beck is going to be the starter but is there a clear difference like uh, a gap between beck and brock and gunner or are those three pretty close
3: i'd say the gap is like i said carson beck has just been there longer and i this is what comes with the territory of Georgia running a pro-style offense like they did with Munkin. And what it sounds like they're going to be doing the same thing with Mike Bobo now as offensive coordinator is, yeah, it takes some time for you to analyze the offense, really study. It takes time off the field to really become comfortable with commanding the offense and being ready to become the starting quarterback. So Carson Beck has had more time, and he's had more time to just become more mature. You know, if you've heard him talk here during the offseason, he has spoken about how he thinks he is more mature at this point. He understands – what is called upon and what it takes to become the starter at Georgia and what that looks like for him. And he said in his first years, I was not ready to do that as a person and as a player. I was not ready to become the starting quarterback for Georgia. So I think that's really the only difference. I mean, both guys, Brock Vandegraaff and even Gunnar Stockton, all have all the tools in the world to be successful in the SEC and as college quarterbacks. But the gap is that Carson Beck just has more experience. And while it's even limited experience, he did get quite a bit of experience last year due to Georgia blowing out teams in the fourth, by the fourth quarter, to where Carson Beck gets to get rolled in and he gets a few series to where he can chunk it around a little bit and just kind of experiment with himself and become more comfortable. And now I think he is just a hundred percent ready to become the starter. And I don't know if you can say that for the other two guys right now.
2: All right, Jonathan Williams joining us. We're talking about some of looking ahead to some of the camp battles for Georgia here. Running back, is it going to be running back by committee or do you see one of the backs breaking out and becoming that that number one gun?
3: I think over the years you've seen it become a committee. I think the last time you really saw just one guy or even two guys just dominate that room is when Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle were there. And then even the year after that when it was DeAndre Swift as the headliner of the group. Since then, though, it's just kind of been a running back by committee. You don't have guys going for over a thousand rushing yards in a season anymore. Kenny McIntosh was just your do-it-all guy last year. But even then, they were going in with Dejan Edwards. They were going in there with Kendall Milton when he was healthy. And then they even put in true freshman Branson Robinson as well. This year, I think it's all going to determine on the health in that room. Can guys stay healthy? Can Kendall Milton finally get a season where he's just 100% healthy the entire year? If he is, I think he could be a guy to do it that can kind of take over that room. But even Dejon Edwards, he's earned his stripes to this point. He's earned his carries, and he is more deserving of getting his chunk of playing time so it's really just going to depend on where you at health-wise. Are guys banged up? And so if that's the case, then, yeah, you're probably going to have one guy just toting the rock for the majority of it. But I think it's still going to – I think their plan for this year is definitely going to be just keep it with a running back by committee.
2: Uh, Jonathan, on the defensive side of the football, who, who's the hardest guy to replace? Is it – because you replace guys at every level here. And I know that you're reloading. I get it. I mean, and there's stars all over the place of five stars and everything. But is there a leader that will be harder to replace in terms of uh, his impact on, on the on the defense than, than any of the other guys?
3: Yeah, I think if you most people would probably tell you Jalen Carr, but I would say from a leadership standpoint, it's Christopher Smith who played safety last year for Georgia and was a veteran safety. That was a guy that played started for Georgia for multiple seasons and he did a really good job of that. But he was very much so a leader in that locker room and a guy that people look to in times of adversity. So that's a tough one to replace. But the good news is, is that you have guys like Javon Bullard, Malachi Starks is going into year two. Tyke Smith is looking to be 100% healthy this year. And even the true freshman, Joan Barrow, you have a lot of guys that you can experiment with there. Dan Jackson, even, he was banged up last year, but he looks to be a full go this year. So you have a lot of guys at once that can kind of help combat trying to replace a guy like Christopher Smith. You're not just having to highlight one singular guy that you are hoping replaces a guy like Christopher says you get to do it almost like you, I said with running backs it's like a safety room by committee you have so many different names that good, they're going to experiment with and a lot of different guys that you're going to see out there playing safety for Georgia and even at the star position as well
2: is dogs daily going to open up a bureau at Buford high school you're just going to, open, going to hire a guy and that'll be his <laughs> that'll be his yeah, job I, honestly
3: it, <laughs> it seems like you should at this point there's so many Georgia targets on that roster Dylan Riola now coming in KJ Bolton's on the list right there Jaden Perlot is a commit in the twenty twenty five class at linebacker. So there is, I mean, there is so many names on that roster, and they're heck, they're right down the road from us. So it seems like, yeah, you should just have guys there twenty four seven because there is so much to cover just from the, the Buford Wolves.
2: Uh, expand this out, just in the final uh, two questions, if, if you would, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Williams of uh, Dogs Daily with John Fricky. Uh, Jonathan, uh, two questions about the SEC: final year of divisions here. Is it a case where you look at South Carolina is going to bat first here? I would imagine that they're going to put up a little, at least a little bit more of a fight than they did last year, considering the way they finished the season. Um, but is there really anybody in the East that's going to – is Tennessee really going to step up behind Joe Milton? Is Billy Napier going to get it together down in Florida with a new quarterback, you know, and Graham Mertz? Uh, is there anybody in the East, Devin Leary, Kentucky, that, that might even be on your radar as being, okay, that might actually – you know, the one we have to be careful of?
3: I think it's between South Carolina or Tennessee. I don't think Kentucky's going to do it. They just had what would have been a first-round draft pick in Will Levis, and they couldn't really get the job done there. They really didn't live up to the expectations of them last year. I think Billy Napier and the Florida Gators are still kind of in rebuilding mode with Graham Mertz at quarterback. Even them, even the Gators, they sounded like they didn't have too much confidence going into this year with Graham Mertz as a starting quarterback. It looked like they might have potential dipping into the portal and grabbing another guy. And just the rest of that roster, just some of the guys that they lost, I think they're still kind of in that rebuilding mode with Billy Napier. So I think it is between Tennessee and South Carolina. South Carolina, of course, returned Spencer Rattler. And I think they would put up a better fight this year. But, man, they had Georgia – at home last year, and they got beat down into the ground by Georgia. It wasn't even close Uh, last year. And then then Tennessee probably is the best shot this year, though, just because it is going to be in Neyland Stadium. But even then, like you said, can Joe Milton replicate what Tennessee was able to do with Jalen Hyatt, Hendon Hooker, and those guys? I don't know. It's a big year for for Josh Heupel up there to see if he can continue the success, which is what you have to do to really become a powerhouse in cultural art. Now, is you have to string – um, successful seasons together consecutively. And so it's a big year for Josh Heupel and them. And I, I do think there are still some questions about Joe Milton. I don't think it's just a sure thing that he's going to go in there, light the world up and be a Heisman front runner or anything like that. I think it is going to have to be, you're going to have to figure things out from week one to week four and see if it is going to be like that. Because I, I mean, I don't know if it, I don't, I don't if you're going into the season expecting that he's going to do the same thing that Hendon Hooker did. I think you might be in for, um, I think you might be a little bit disappointed if you're a Tennessee fan.
2: Uh, final question, Jonathan Williams, as we head towards SEC Media Days in Nashville, coming up in about uh, 10 days uh, or so. And uh, as we look for a number two in the East, I think we look for a number three in the West. Uh, Alabama and LSU are clear of the field, I think. But one of those teams will have a good season. One of those teams will step up. And it could be Arkansas, and it could be Ole Miss. Uh, I guess it could be a I guess. I don't know. I guess. Uh, is there a team out West that you think that is going to possibly, outside of Alabama and LSU, be a little bit more of a a harder out this year than some people, some fans realize?
3: I think Ole Miss always has a shot with Lane Kiffin just because of the offense powerhouse that he has built out there. He always has the offense going. It's just a matter of getting the defense going on top of that as well. So I think you can always kind of bet on them to maybe be that tough out in the West and maybe exceed expectations. Whereas LSU and Alabama right now are the two front runners right now but maybe Ole Miss can finally get some things rolling there and they end up being one or two in the west. And Arkansas, they return KJ Jefferson, that's a really good that's really important for them Sam Pittman. He's kind of been able to elevate that program a little higher than it was a few years ago. So maybe he can finally push through that threshold this year and get to, and start getting into the topper edge of the west, but I think really it's going to boil down to LSU, Alabama and Ole Miss, but then maybe Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher can finally put to use that number one recruiting class that they just had a year ago and play like they everyone expected them to and play to their level of football and not be losing games to App State. So I think it, maybe four teams, I'd say A&M, LSU, Alabama, and Arkansas would be those four teams. Everybody else, I don't know if I could see them reaching up to those one or two seeds.
2: I do appreciate it. Uh, next stop Nashville for you. Uh, Maybe I don't know. We're still trying
3: to figure those things out. I hope so, though.
2: All right. Well, it sounds good. Hey, Jonathan, I do uh, do appreciate it. At Doctor Dr underscore J, the letter J W I L L uh, on the Twitter at Doctor underscore J Will. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. From the Northern Kia Studios, John Friggey for John Chuckery tonight. I'll be back tomorrow and Friday doing this as well. We uh, spent a lot of time talking football, and we will uh, continue to talk football because we are every day inching ever so close to the start of training camp. And, of course, our full coverage of AT&T training camp begins later this month on Sports Radio 90 on the game from Flowery Branch. But in the meantime, we still have a baseball team that we've got to get through uh, because they are just some some kind of special, aren't they? I said at the beginning, very beginning of the show, something I tweeted out last night. I said it cl- kind of cleaner on on the air than I tweeted. Um, that uh, that loss last night is just going to make them mad because that's exactly what happened. Because they they were mad they, they were mad after that game. They should never have lost that game, and they know it. They should have swept the Guardians, and so I said they're mad. They're angry. And they're going to kind of take it out. Well, they had 19 hits tonight. If they get a clutch hit here or there, that isn't an 8-1 win. That's like 12-1, 14-1, to, one, 14 to one. easy. I mean, it would have been just a demolition. I mean, it was a demolition as it was. 19 hits, 14 singles. Everybody in the batting order had a hit, at least one. Sean Murphy had four of them. Murphy had one of the three home runs, his 15th of the year. Riley hit his 16th of the year. Matt Olson hit one of the moon, his 29th of the year. And with that 29th home run, Matt Olson also hit the 70 RBI mark before the All-Star break. I don't know. I mean, we're starting to talk about individual records here. Matt Olsen uh, certainly way ahead of the pace to break the all-time home run record. And the interesting stat about the all-time home run record for the Atlanta Braves is that in the entire history of the Braves, the Boston Braves, the Milwaukee Braves, the Atlanta Braves, there's only been one player who hit 50 or more home runs in one season. And it only happened one time. That was Andrew Jones, who hit 51. Henry Aaron Hank never hit 50 in a year. He had a lot. He had, like, if you look at his, you know, his baseball card, 44, 47, 46, 47, 45, 44, 46, 47. I mean, it was like, oh, that was what it was. He could, for whatever reason, he just didn't hit 50. Eddie Matthews never hit 50. Jeff Burrows never hit 50. I mean, we're talking about the great sluggers. Murphy, uh, Dale, Mur- but then again, I don't know that Dale Murphy ever hit 40. I don't think he, he may not have. He, always, he was always like 37, 38. I'm not sure Dale Murphy ever hit 40. Chipper never hit 50. I mean, so... All these great players, all these great sluggers, you know, Hobby never hit 50. I'm sure he was in, you know, 43, 44 range. Uh, you know, you go back in time, you know, to, uh, to Daryl Evans and other great big hitters that this team had. But so only one guy's hit 50, and that's Andrew Jones, and Olsen's way ahead of that. If I'm not mistaken off the top of my head, I think Gary Sheffield's 132 RBIs is the Atlanta Braves RBI record. And so with 70 already, I mean, he's ahead of pace on that. Um, Murphy's home run also gave Murphy 50 RBIs on the year. There are now four Braves with at least 50 RBIs at the All-Star break. That's a lot. Murphy has 50, Acuna has 54, Ozzy has 63, and Olsen has 70. There's also three more there are in the 40s, have more, at least 40, uh, Ozuna, Eddie, and Riley. That's seven players with at least 40 RBIs before the All-Star break. That's a, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, so they uh, continue to pound on things. Uh, other good news from this uh, 8-1 uh, whooping of the uh, Guardians, Michael Sirocco went 4.2, uh, gave up five hits, uh, but didn't allow a run and struck out four. It wasn't a master class or anything, but it was good and solid and another step in the right direction. And Michael Tonkin came in and gave a really good long relief performance, really good one. Uh, it was also Brian Snicker's 600th career win, so congratulations to Snit. And uh, and it was their 10th straight series win. Now they get a day off tomorrow. They go to, to Tampa. For all the talk about that great start that Tampa was on, do you know that the Rays are going to Tampa? They're two and a half games ahead of the Rays in the race for number one overall. They, they caught them, passed them. They're two and a half up. Uh, And that's for the overall best record in the game. For as great as the Rays have been, the Braves are two and a half ahead. They're also eight games ahead of the next best team in the National League, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and the Miami Marlins. And of course, they what are they nine and one against the Marlins this year, Day Day? I think so, right? Nine and one. I mean, they own every tiebreaker. Their record against the East is stupid. It's like twenty-seven and three or so. Who knows? I mean, it's just dumb. Uh, but the, the Marlins, they're 9-1 against the Marlins, if I'm not mistaken. So they own every single tiebreaker already. I mean, they've like won the season series, and we're not even to the halfway point. Oh, yeah, we, we've got that. So it'll be uh, Charlie Morton on Friday, Spencer Strider on Saturday, and Bryce Elder on Sunday. People are saying, of course, that this is a bit of a preview of the World Series. I'm not sure that it is. And I think, look, the Braves are going to get to the World Series. The Braves are going to win the World Series. I'm not sure Tampa's going to get there. Uh, you know what? I, second half, I could see Houston hunting them down. The Astros have been the best team in baseball for quite some time now. The Astros and the Braves and the Dodgers, those three. But the Dodgers are not catching the Braves. Uh, the, um, nobody in the National League is catching the Braves. The Astros could catch them. Uh, that would be the one team. Even though I know the Orioles have played well, the Rangers have played very well. The Rangers hit like nobody's business. The Rangers hit like the Braves do, but the Rangers' pitching is just not no good. And it's so not no good. They're going to be buyers at the all-star, at the trade deadline, the Rangers are. Look, they could they could buy Max Scherzer. I, I hope they do, actually. Keep him out of the National League. I don't want to see that dude no more. Though we've, we've fared fairly well over the course of time against Scherzer, so... Not really overly concerned about it. But again, 19 hits, uh three home runs, two doubles, and fourteen singles in this game. They just couldn't quite get that one or two extras. It would make, I mean, as if eight to one isn't enough, right? <laughs> All they did was make them mad. Now they get the day off, they go down to Tampa and they have something else to prove down in Tampa that hey, you know what? We are we're the best team, not you. And and watching these guys play, you know, one of the things that somebody said to me the other day. Day Day, Mm -hmm. when I was talking about how this team, you know, what happens if they clinch by, you know, August 20th and they've clinched everything, you know, I mean, what if they're just so far ahead that the last 30 games don't mean anything, you know, late August, it's, you know, not only is the division clinched, but they've clinched like number one seed in the national. I mean, they're so far, they're 15 games ahead. I mean, stupid. Do they get bored?
4: Yeah. I, I, you know what? I don't think they, they'll get bored. I think they'll stay inspired. I think they'll be on a mission. Um, they were so close last year in the letdown of last year. Um, I think it will be, even with a big lead, even, you know, come the end of August, you know, they're up double digits over everybody in the division. I think they'll still be motivated to prove that, um, one, they know they should have got it done last year.
2: I also think that there's an individual competition – Inside the the locker room, there, uh, I think they all look at their numbers. You know, I was just kind of going over some of them. I think there's like a little home run race that goes on. I look, they've all seeded the home run race to Matt Olson, but there's a race for like number two. You know, Ozzy is currently the second, and then you got Acuna, and then you've got Riley going. I just he hit another one tonight, but Riley's like, I've got to have more than 16. I got to get in this thing, and Murphy's like, I got to get in this thing. You know, everybody's got to get in, right? I gotta get. I gotta get more. I gotta get mine. Everybody, everybody wants to get to you know theirs. And, and you see, uh, you know the and, and now there are some guys, especially in the bullpen, and even in the starting rotation. You know they're they're all fighting for spots, because once they go into the playoffs, we're you know if, if you get Freed back, get, hey, if you get Wright back, you'd have Freed and Wright, Strider and Elder, Morton and Soroka. You'd have six starters, legit starters. There's only four spots. And so there's going to be some serious, you know, down the stretch. Hey, I want to I want to be on that uh, I want to be on that rotation. I want to be on that rotation. I want to be on the rotation, you know. So a couple of those guys are probably going to be the long relievers. And so it'll be really interesting I think that that's going on and yeah, there's still a competition in the bullpen too. This is why I do want the one guy I mentioned earlier, Josh Hader. If the Padres make Hader available, yes. I would trade a couple of youngsters to the Padres for to, to rent Josh Hader for the remainder of this year. Yes, of course I would, and I think anybody else who, who wouldn't is being foolish. It's about winning this now and immediately. Yeah, the numbers this team—you know—that they have a hundred and sixty-six home runs. A hundred, Day, a hundred and sixty-six, yeah.
4: and they're what? They're two. What? They're number two in the league, I think, in hits. And three in runs, or vice versa, but they're right there at the top.
2: But there are 166 home runs. I know, that's crazy. I mean, there were many a year. If you go back to the 90s and and look through those teams, the Ron Gantt, David Justice, Fred McGriff, you know, all the great players in Terry Pendleton, and all the great players that we had, where those teams would end up with 166 home runs for the year. Yep. And they were, you know, division winners and World Series teams. They had 166 for the year. This team has 166 now. Yeah. They have 78 games to go. And they were, I know
4: when I looked at it uh, last week, they were like 10 home runs ahead of whoever was next.
2: Oh, no, they're like 25 or 30 home runs ahead. (laughs) I mean, they have like 166 and the next highest total is like 132. Or something like that. No, I mean, this team, it's like beer league softball, isn't it? <laughs> Get up there and pound one out. Yeah. You know? So I think there's a little competition going on inside this uh, this team. They're all looking at the at the numbers, right, every day. They're look, they look at the stat sheet every single day. And you know a guy like Austin Riley has got a lot of pride. And Austin's had a big year. I mean, he's got 16 home runs. He's got 44 RBIs. He's hitting 270. Made the All-Star team. 16, 44, 270, 16. That slash line, 270 average, 16 home runs, 44 RBIs, and then there could be some more down in Tampa. And uh, starting the uh, on the All Star team, that's a really good first half. And yet, in comparison, he's looking at other people going, "I can't touch Acuna, I can't touch Olson, I'm not touching Ozzy." Uh, you know, I mean, he, he's like, "Okay, Murphy's now ahead of me in RBIs." I mean, he's like, "I got to get mine." I don't think there's any getting bored. I think they're all trying to set record after record after record. Riley's thinking, how do I get hot enough to hit 40 home runs? And if I hit 40 home runs, would I crack the top five on the team? There was a year, I want to say it was 73 maybe, maybe 73. I'd have to go back and look at the – somebody out there wants to crack a book, they can, where – Hank Aaron, Daryl Evans, and do you guys know who Davey Johnson is? Yeah, the manager guy. Some people forget, Davey Johnson was a star second baseman for your Atlanta Braves. And those three guys all hit 40 or more home runs that year. It was like 73. Uh, Davey had pop. Uh, so, yeah, Aaron hit 47, and I think Daryl Evans hit 42, and Davey hit 43 or something like that. You had three guys hit over 40 home runs. Now, I'm I'm a kid. We were talking about that in school going, the Braves had three guys hit 40 home runs or more. How does that happen? Well, this year, you have one, two, three. They're certainly on pace to hit 40. And if they get hot, you could have four, five, six. You could have seven. <laughs> you could. Now, it's going to require a couple of guys to get really hot, like Eddie and, and Riley. They'd have to have really monster runs here. But let's put it this way. All seven are probably going to hit 30, and at least three are going to hit 40, maybe four. Wow. It's just insane. The numbers that they're putting up is so much fun to watch, isn't it, today? I mean, just isn't it It, it, it really to is. Watch they, these Yeah. Guys.
4: I mean, and just it's just fun to watch. They're just cool. Like, just they're just having fun, man. And that's what makes it so fun to watch them because they're having so much fun.
2: And, and, you know, you you sit here and rattle off stats, and people go, don't just rattle off stats. But you have to rattle off the stats because the stats are what's making it fun for us. They are a stat machine. They're going to be breaking all kinds of – Oh, by the way, if you're curious, the record for home runs in a season by a team is 307 by the Minnesota Twins of 2019, okay? Uh, The Braves have 166. They are on pace to uh, to break that record. So – Yikes. They could end up as the all-time greatest home run hitting team in the history of baseball. Well, then, again, I have to think about, you know, maybe the um, the pace of what they're going at, but it's just it's three home runs. They hit three home runs tonight, and you go, that's all? They only hit three? <laughs> yeah. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I'll be back 7 to 11 tomorrow and 7 to 11 Friday and on your radio on the weekend as well. And John Chuckery will be back next Monday night. Thanks to all of you who called in. Yeah, even you, Mel. And uh, thank you, Day-Day. I appreciate your, your work and your effort tonight. It
4: was a pleasure. Looking forward to doing it again with you tomorrow.
2: All right, stand by, top of the hour, Jr. and much more as we continue on Sports Radio Night. He's on the game in the Odyssey app.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.